0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's just a pleasure to be able to be here this morning and uh, bring God's word for everyone uh, here in this room, which is not that many, and that's kind of weird. But it is uh, a pleasure just to, to be here this morning. We miss you guys. Uh, it's, um, it's been a long time since we've seen many of you, and uh, we long to be with you and see you again, uh, to sing with you and to share in that fellowship um, Uh, But we trust that the Lord's doing a good work in your lives, even through this time. Uh, Our text this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 15. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, We'll read the the whole chapter together, uh, just to get some of the context. uh, But our time this morning will be focused on verses 9 through 15. 1 Timothy 2. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray as we open our time this morning. Lord, we come before your word uh, humbly, would you humble our hearts um, to hear your word this morning we 're thankful that you have given it to us, and we trust you that your word is good, that it is perfect, that it 's inerrant, inspired by you, and authoritative for our lives. So would you uh, speak to us through your word this morning uh, on this subject of uh, women 's roles in the church? We pray that uh, Christ would be magnified uh, here this morning, uh, that your Holy Spirit would work through your word in our hearts uh, to show us uh, the beauty of the gospel and in the design that you have given uh, for men and women in your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The subject of today's sermon is the role of women in the church. Uh, but more specifically how properly ordered roles protect and display the gospel in the life of the church. We'll see from this passage that God has a specific design for men and women, and he's given us both unique roles to play as we seek to worship him together as a body. Let me say from the outset that much of what we read in our passage this morning is Uh, Contrary to this world's modern sensibilities, it's not a culturally accepted message, but it's the word of God. It's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's trustworthy, and it's good. God's word is true, and it's good, because God himself does not lie, and he is a good God. The word that God has given to us isn't something to be accepted with grumbling and apprehension, the way a, a child receives his broccoli for dinner. God's word is something to be embraced and cherished, something that we long for, something we delight in. So our hope is that God's word would be to us sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb, more desirable than gold. Would, be, would it be our source of life, our source of strength, encouragement, and our source of wisdom? The wisdom that's contained here in 1 Timothy 2 is not merely the words of Paul. This is his, this, it's not just off-the-cuff advice to Timothy, you know, something that he could either take it or leave it, something that's optional for the church. This is the authoritative, apostolic, inspired word of the Lord. For we know this, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So before we get to verses 9 through 15, uh, let's just review briefly what uh, Pastor Mark and Ted have gone over these last few weeks. And as we read in in 1 Timothy chapter 1, see Paul's writing to his beloved child in the faith, Timothy. Uh, He's left Timothy in Ephesus, has departed for Macedonia. So as Timothy is there to shepherd the flock, Paul charges him in verse 3 to protect the church from those who are teaching any different doctrine. We see the nature of this false gospel that was being promoted specifically in this misapplication and twisting of the law of God. And then Paul contrasts this false gospel with the true gospel of Christ. And in verses 12 through 17, Paul recounts the way in which Christ has come into his own life and graciously bestowed salvation upon him. It wasn't by works of the law or any good deed that Paul had done, but it was by the sovereign grace of Christ that he was called. In verse 13, he says, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul has received this charge from the Lord. He's been appointed to his service. He's been commissioned to preach the gospel of Christ. And now Paul is passing on this charge to Timothy. He urges Timothy to wage the good warfare. He's realized that there's a battle for the gospel, and Timothy must stand firm, confronting all who stray from the message that has been passed down from Christ. And then as we get to chapter 2, we see that the battle for the gospel is not one that is only in the teaching of the church, but it's a matter of both doctrine and practice. This has always been the case for Paul. You even see in chapter 4 where he tells Timothy to keep a close watch on both his life and his doctrine. Indeed, there there's implications of the gospel that must be lived out in the life of the church, and what Paul addresses here at the beginning of chapter 2 is the prayer for the lost— especially those who are in positions of power, is to be an important facet of the church's worship. We see that this is a priority because of the prominence that Paul gives it, to it in his instruction. He says, first of all, right, this charge here is to, is to pray specifically for the salvation of the lost, not excluding any groups, because the gospel is available to all men no matter their ethnicity, social status, uh, position in society. God desires all men to be saved, and the way to salvation is through the one mediator, Jesus Christ. So you can imagine a type of prayer that doesn't reflect this true gospel. It maybe is a a prayer for for Jews only or for for Gentiles only. It could be a a habit of prayer that isn't for salvation, but for, for condemnation. This type of prayer would be an attack on the true nature of the gospel and the character of God. And the men in particular are to lead the way in this prayer. They're called to be prayerful, living holy lives in a manner that's consistent with the gospel, consistent with their prayers. So now that we've kind of set the context of our passage this morning, uh, Paul has been instructing Timothy to guard the gospel, both in the teaching and in the life of the church. And the way the church is to pray is connected to their gospel profession. And now as we get to our, our passage today, we'll see that the church both protects and displays the gospel by having women function in their proper roles that God has designed for them. And just to give you like a framework of where we're going this morning we're going to see from this passage two areas of public worship where proper order protects and displays the gospel. Then we're going to see the the theological foundation that supports this whole structure. So so Paul, in this passage, gives commands in two areas. The first being the way that women are to dress and present themselves. The second being the teaching roles in the church. Then starting in verse 13, Paul kind of supports these instructions by grounding them theologically. Uh, But first, we'll look specifically at verses 9 and 10, where we see that Christian women are to adorn themselves with modest dress and godly behavior. This is the first point uh, this morning, that the gospel is protected and displayed by properly ordered appearance. Let's read verses 9 and 10 once more. Paul writes, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. We should notice from this passage, uh, first of all, is it starts with the word likewise, which connects these thoughts back to what has preceded. So just as the men of the church have been called to pray, so now we receive instruction for the women of the church. Just as the responsibility to pray uh, falls on men uh, because of the work that the gospel has done in their lives, it's reshaped them, so now women are called to dress modestly as a part of the expression of the new work that Christ has done in them. There's a command here in verse 9. It's that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. What does it mean that women are to adorn themselves? Uh, the The Greek word here for adorn means uh, to put into order or to make ready or to to arrange. And so the implication of this is that women are to be intentional about the way that they dress. It's not something that we take lightly or it's haphazardly. There's to be a careful attention given to a woman's clothing. And here in this context, uh, the consideration of your clothing should be tied to your gospel profession. If you claim to be a Christian, then your dress should be properly ordered according to that confession. This is about putting on display what the reality of what Christ has done in your life. So ladies, you have to ask ourselves, or yourselves, what are you putting on display when you come to church to worship God. Does the manner in which you have ordered your clothing reflect a changed heart and a transformed life? Does your dress point to the grace and mercy of Christ? Or does it draw attention to yourself? Like we, we understand this even in other contexts. Uh, just last weekend, uh, we had the privilege of hosting Antonio and Adira's wedding in our backyard uh, it was definitely a joy to see the two of them come together um, in the covenant of marriage, you know, God joining them together. Uh, we did our best to, to clean up our, our yard, to, you know, spray down all the chalk that was on the cement, to uh, remove all the kids' toys and, and hide them away so that the focus could be on the ceremony. Our, our daughter Jamie, she's, she's three now. Uh, she was very excited for this wedding. She was a little bit jealous of Isabel, who was the, the flower girl, but Jamie was excited to dress up and, and participate and be a part of this wedding. She did have one suggestion for, for Udi. Uh, she goes, Mommy, like you should wear your wedding dress to the wedding. And so we had to explain, Well, Jamie, you know, we don't, that's not appropriate because you don't want to draw attention to yourself. That's like distracting from the point of the ceremony, which is to, you know, celebrate the, the work that God's doing in, in these two people's life, in Antonio and Nadir's life. And that would be a distraction from the point of the wedding. So it is here in First Timothy, the worship service is about Christ. How are women to show that this service is it's not about them, but it's about Jesus. It's through putting on respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. And the NASB translates the word respectable as, as proper. The Greek word here is actually derived from the same root as adorn. And so there's this continued emphasis on orderliness. It's something that's decent, something that's put into order. It's not chaotic. It's the opposite of chaotic. This is contrasted with this prohibition of braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly attire. So there's this clear distinction between the type of clothing that's proper for women who profess Christ and the clothing that is not. And in in the context of a worship service, a a woman should not be dressed in order to draw attention to herself. Braided hair, gold, and pearls were all items that, uh, you know, even... Would have been a distraction for the setting that Paul is in. Here it was even common for women to weave into their hair gold and pearls and all the costly things that they owned and put them on display. It was to, to flaunt their wealth. It's to show everyone just how much they owned. You can imagine, you know, a woman walking in with basically her jewelry box like woven into her hair. You think that would attract some attention? Now we have to understand that this particular application, the prohibition of braided hair and gold and pearls, was given in this particular culture because that's what was ostentatious at the time. I think if one of our ladies were to walk into church with braided hair, I don't think any of us would really think twice about it. It wouldn't be distracting. So we have to understand how this passage applies in our context today. So ladies, before you go out, you should be asking yourselves, does what you're wearing draw attention to yourself or does it draw attention to Christ? Is your skirt too short? Is your shirt too low-cut? Is your dress too tight? Are you decked out from head to toe in such a way that puts your wealth on display? This isn't to say that women aren't allowed to take care in their clothing. It doesn't mean that they're not allowed to dress with style or they have to wear the most plain clothes possible. Even though woman in Proverbs 31, she has clothing of fine linen and, and purple. Our culture today will tell you that what you should wear is whatever you want. It says that a woman is powerful if she dresses in a way that's revealing, exposing as much skin as possible. It's touted as, as liberation, as freedom, as empowerment. As authentic self-expression. But ladies, dressing like the billboard pop star or the supermodel cover girl is not freedom. It's enslavement to a culture that objectifies women and only looks at the superficial. True freedom is found out in living our high calling of being a woman who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Satisfaction is found in embracing what is good, and perfect God's design for your life. Not the world's standard of beauty, but Christ's standard of beauty. But here in verses 9 and 10, Paul's not only concerned with the external, with the outside appearance. He says that women are to adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Modesty and self-control. These are attitudes of the heart. And we see this also in 1 Peter 3. You can turn there if you'd like. A very similar idea in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. Peter writes, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is a transformation from the inside out. It's not a legalistic thing where uh, women earn points with God because they dress a certain way. And just like Peter does in 1 Peter 3, Paul is calling the women of the church to a humble attitude in their attire. It's an attitude that doesn't desire the spotlight or the attention. Connoted in this word for modesty is even the idea of shame. Right? We understand this. When we walk down the street and we see someone who's you know, scantily clad or just like, decked out in something flamboyant and loud, we go, oh man, like, that person has no shame. And we kind of roll our eyes. It's so clear by what they're wearing that they just want to make much of themselves. They want the attention for themselves. But modesty, self-control... These are heart attitudes that stem from the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Because God has done a mighty act, bringing you out of the bondage to sin, bringing you from death to life, and uniting you with Christ. Your heart's changed, and it's no longer self-seeking, but it's humble, it's modest. It's It's not wanting to cause anyone to sin or to stumble. So the attention shifts from yourself to Christ. And again we have to ask, what is the motivation in dress when you come to church? What's going on in your heart when you select the clothes that you're going to wear? Is Christ controlling your heart? Is his lordship extending to what you wear? Are you seeking to honor Christ both in your heart and in your attire? Or are you seeking to promote yourself, to flaunt your body or your riches, the adornment that women are to put on is, is not limited to respectable apparel. Verse 10 says that women are to adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness. What is that? It's with good works. This is the testimony of everyone who's been truly saved by Christ. We're saved by grace, through faith, unto good works. It's a clear teaching of Paul in Ephesians 2, 8-10. through That salvation is by the complete mercy and grace of God, but salvation results in the good works that God has created for us to walk in. This is what James teaches when he says that faith without works is dead. Therefore, it's proper for women who profess godliness to be known for their good works. This is a properly ordered life where your confession and your life match up. Paul is clear in his letter to Timothy that both your life and your doctrine matter. He says it's not enough to just have technically corrected doctrine and it's not enough to just live well. These two are married to one another. We can't divorce proper gospel teaching from proper gospel living. So godliness that should be displayed here is behavior that demonstrates your faith in God. We see this theme of godliness kind of permeating throughout uh, Paul's letter to Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 2, we are called to pray so that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to proclaim these fundamental truths about who Christ is. So that this idea of godliness is tied closely to the orthodox view of Christ. That the church is is supposed to guard and protect. In chapter 4, verse 7, Paul urges Timothy to train himself for godliness. And in chapter 6, verse 3, Paul warns against those who teach things that do not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So Paul, what Paul is saying here in, in chapter 2, verse 10, it, it's very clear. He's saying that if you're professing godliness, if you're professing the truth about Christ, if you're professing that the gospel has come in and changed your life, that needs to be evident by the good works that you do. You're not to be adorned in, in flashy clothes that draw attention to yourself and, and then all the glory goes to you. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, You're to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the way that women dress, the attitude of their hearts, the good works that they do should not point to themselves. They should put God on center stage and magnify his goodness and his holiness and his gospel. So as we move through this passage and come to verses 11 and 12, Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is the second point this morning. Not only is the gospel displayed and protected through properly ordered appearance, but the gospel is displayed and protected through properly ordered Teaching and leadership in the church. The second point the gospel is protected and displayed through properly ordered teaching and leadership in the church. In these two verses, we see uh, one positive command and one prohibition. The first is in verse 11 that women are to learn. But before we move on to the rest of this passage, We should just stop here and recognize that God calls women to be learners. As fellow image bearers of God, equal in dignity, value, and worth, women are to be discipled in the truth of God's word. They're to be taught. They're to be mentored. They're to be built up. They're to be encouraged. Well, many may first read this passage and and just brush it aside as a, a relic of antiquity we have to realize that this was something that was even countercultural in Paul's day. Women were not typically highly esteemed. They weren't allowed in the prominent places in the temple. They weren't allowed access to the rabbis and teachers. But Paul is affirming what Jesus affirmed and what has been true since creation, that women are valuable disciples made in the image of God. Indeed, throughout the scriptures, we see the high calling that God has given to women in his plan of redemption. If we just work through it, we see the Mosaic Law was given to all of Israel. Both men and women were to teach it to their children. The law applies equally to men and women. They both participated in religious feasts. Women were to serve in spiritual ways. As we get into the New Testament, John MacArthur writes, that in no way are women treated as spiritual inferiors. The first person Jesus revealed his Messiahship to was a woman. Jesus healed women. In contrast to the prevailing practice of the rabbis, he taught women. Women ministered to Jesus and the disciples. And following his resurrection, Jesus appeared first to a woman. Women and men were invited to early church prayer services. Men and women are to be granted honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life, and the fruit of the Spirit is for both men and women. In short, he writes, all the promises, commands, and blessings of the New Testament apply equally to to women and men. Women are to be learners. Ladies, you need to be serious students of the Scriptures. You need to study theology. You need to know how to read your Bible. You need to memorize it. You need to listen to it. You need to meditate on it. Ladies, I encourage you to study God's word. Invest your lives in it. When you go read a Christian book other than the Bible, don't l- limit yourselves to only books that are about being a Christian woman. Read about the person and the work of Christ. Read about the doctrine of the church. Read about eschatology. Read about apologetics. Be true students of the word of God. When you have a greater uh, understanding of the whole counsel of God, you'll be better equipped to live out your God-ordained roles as wives, as mothers, as helpers, and servants of the Lord. So Paul is very clear here in verse 11 that women are to learn, but they're to do so quietly with all submissiveness. And here the emphasis is that the teaching a woman receives is to be met with humility, submission to the leadership that God has placed in the church, namely the elders of the church. And the headship of the elders of the church in their teaching roles, they're not supposed to be spoken out against by women in the public assembly. Rather, they're to receive this teaching with an attitude of submission, And even as we'll see in the coming weeks that God has given the authority of the office of elder to properly qualified men, we see here in verse 11 that women are to respect the authority that God has placed over them. They're not to revolt or to lead a charge um, against the teachers in the public gathering. As women receive instruction as they're taught the scriptures, they're poured into by faithful shepherds They reflect the gospel through properly receiving that teaching, quietly, with submissiveness. This attitude is fitting for a woman who trusts the the word of the Lord. In our culture, we hear this word submission, and and it kind of grates against us, but for a woman who fears the Lord, she embraces this calling because she knows that it's God's will that is best for her life. In fact, trusting the Lord in this area will lead to her spiritual growth, sanctification, and satisfaction. Again, it's not a command to be just accepted begrudgingly, just following the letter of the law, but resenting it in your hearts. We should be thankful for the revelation that God has given to us in this passage. We should embrace his design for men and women in the church We should submit our hearts to his lordship, knowing that he is indeed our master. But he's a father who's loved us and cared for us. And the church is the bride of Christ. He cares deeply for her. He nourishes and cherishes his bride. We shouldn't be so audacious to believe that we can mess with his design for his people and his church. So women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. And when we get to verse 12, uh, Paul now elaborates and builds on this idea and says clearly that women are not permitted to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Elaborating on the ideas of verse 11, Paul states plainly and clearly that women are to keep quiet in the sense that they are not to teach. Their submissiveness is demonstrated by not grasping hold of the authoritative teaching roles in the church. These are reserved for men, but not just any men, qualified godly men, as we'll see next week. It's also important to note that the verb tense in this Greek word for teach leads to maybe the more literal translation of the idea of just being a teacher. So Paul is saying that it's not the proper role of a woman to be a teacher in the assembly of the church. Very clearly, this role of a pastor or elder is not one that the women of the church are permitted to assume. Why is that? Because teaching and exercising authority is what elders and pastors do. This describes the function of the leadership of the church. Elders are the under-shepherds of Christ. They have an authority that's been delegated to them by Christ to teach his word, to shepherd the flock of God among them. It's to be carried out by faithful men, not women. Again, I have to reiterate that, that submission is not in any way placing you know, lesser value or worth on women. This is a matter of role and function, not a matter of value or dignity. If we turn over quickly to, to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. There, Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This passage lays out very clearly the authority and submission roles between man and Christ, a woman and her husband as well as this dynamic, dynamic between the Son and the Father. So if we're going to go down this path of equating submission with diminished worth or value, this is going to have hazardous implications on our view of the Godhead. But we would absolutely assert the equality of the Father and the Son. Indeed, all persons of the Trinity are, are co-equal. They share the divine essence and nature, yet they have different roles and functions. So it is with husbands and wives. And now this carries over into the life of the church, where God has ordained that qualified men be the leaders, while women are to remain quiet, not exercising authority over men. Women are equal to men in, in value and in dig- in dignity, yet equality in worth does not translate to equality in function or role. So are we going to, to trust God's word, obey it or or not. It's not an issue that, that churches, or this is an issue that churches will need to confront uh, and continu- continue to confront, even as those in, in conservative circles begin to stray from the, the biblical principles laid out here. It's even a debate within America's largest denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, as to whether or not women are permitted to preach on the Lord's Day. Popular evangelical figures have advocated for women taking on leadership roles in the church, teaching the Bible up front so that other women would be able to view that and then recognize that they too can be students of the Bible and dive deep into the word. The argument that is, it, the argument goes, you know, if someone is... Um, unable to receive teaching from the pulpit unless the person standing behind it looks just like them. This type of thinking is not only ludicrous, but it's unbiblical and precisely the ideology that Paul is combating in 1 Timothy 2. Paul's saying exactly the opposite. He's arguing that women should be learning from and listening to the male leadership in the church. After all, this is the way that God has sovereignly ordered his body to function. So if we stand up and say, you know, I can't really connect with the preacher because he's a man and I'm a woman. It's just, it's just hard for me to identify. We're actually telling God that his design isn't good. Right? We're telling God that maybe he should have planned this out a little differently. This isn't a position we want to find ourselves in. So although Paul clearly limits the teaching in the church to men, we also see that there is a proper role for women in teaching. If we turn to Titus 2 and look down at verse 3. Titus 2, verse 3 says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so trained the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So there is a proper context where women are to be teachers. And that's when older women are teaching younger women. They're also called to teach their, their children. And you even see that, that women prayed, played a prominent role in Timothy's life. Right, in Second Timothy, Paul takes joy in the fact that uh, the faith that dwelt in Timothy's mother and grandmother now dwells in Timothy. This is why it's important for women to be students of the word. They need to be equipped in the word so that they can pass it on to other women and children. So we've seen now that the true gospel is put on display and protected, not only through proper uh, appearance and, and dress, but also through properly ordered teaching and leadership roles in the church. And as we get down to, to verses 13 through 15, Paul is going to provide this theological foundation for this argument. Well, While we've covered in verses 9 through 12 the, the instruction and the direction, 13 through 15 provide the reasoning behind it. So our final point this morning, that the gospel is proclaimed and protected by God's original design. Many many times when when this uh, passage is referenced and you talk about uh, men's and women's roles in the church as Paul's laid them out here in First Timothy two, what you'll hear in response is like, "Isn't this just outdated? Isn't Paul simply just a reflection of the patriarchal society that he's living in?" Isn't he, isn't he teaching these things just because that was what was going on in the culture? This was like the normal thing then? The following verses provide a clear rebuttal of this argument. In verse, th- verse 13, Paul grounds his argument not in societal norms, but in biblical history and God's design. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So Paul brings us back to the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 where Adam and Eve are created by God. And he specifically points to the order of creation as the sign of this priority of male leadership both in the husband and wife relationship and in the relationships and the leadership of the church. So speaking with apostolic authority Paul brings Genesis 1 and 2 to bear on the current situation in Ephesus. It's showing that the creation of Adam and Eve reveals something about the structure of the family and the structure of the church that should be reflected in every society and every culture for all time. Some will want to say that these roles of authority and submission are, are a result of the fall. The claim is that everything was kind of this egalitarian state, uh, at the beginning, and then sin enters the world, and now we have this imbalance in gender roles. But if we just follow the argument here, it's clear that order was built into these relationships prior to the fall. It goes right back to the order by which Adam and Eve were created. Paul also makes this argument in First Corinthians 11, which we read from earlier, and he writes that, for man was not made from woman, But woman from man. Furthermore, when we look at Ephesians chapter 5, Paul connects the marriage covenant inherent in God's design to be a, a picture of this relationship between Christ and the church. From the beginning, there was an image of the gospel woven into the very fabric of creation as wives submit to their husbands and as husbands love their wives they image the relationship between Christ and his church so god's roles and design for men and women have always been meant to paint a picture of the gospel it's why there's so much emphasis given here in 1 Timothy 2 to women properly abiding by their god given role it's because it's a reflection of the gospel and when men and women veer off the course that God has charted out for them. They do damage to the witness of the true gospel in the church. There's even evidence of this in verse 14. And Paul says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This verse isn't saying that women are somehow more gullible or open to deception than men because they're not as clever or they're not as intelligent, anything like that. Rather, this event, namely the fall, has happened as Adam leaves his God-ordained role and Eve subverts her God-ordained role and assumes the position of leadership. Adam should have been the protector and the shepherd, yet he fails to take responsibility and Eve is deceived. So the, the purpose of Paul, including this verse, is to show what happens when these roles are reversed, especially in light of verse 13, which roots these roles in the created order, so as much as this sermon maybe seems like it's just directed at the women of the church, we, we have to pause and exhort the men as well. Peter will will build upon this next week, but we must see this as a clear call for the men of the church to step up. We need the men of the church to be spirit filled. The elders and teachers and shepherds exercising the authority that God has entrusted to them. We need men to be godly leaders in their homes and godly leaders in the church. Husbands, we're to be leading our homes and protecting our wives. We're to be nourishing them with the word. We're to be praying with them, praying for them, and setting an example for them to follow. We're to be discipling our children and instructing them in the ways of the Lord. We're to be loving our wives and our children. The men of the church are to call are called to lead, and the uh, the men of the church need to embrace this calling for godliness and holiness, and uh, to grow in maturity in Christlikeness. We need to be the type of men that people will follow. Though sin has now entered the world as a result of the fall, and and the woman has become a transgressor. Paul provides gospel hope in verse 15. He writes, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This can seem somewhat confusing at first. Saved through childbearing? Like, we observe that Paul, you know, cannot mean here that there's a a salvific merit achieved uh, through having children. All people are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. This doctrine is explicit throughout uh, Paul's writing and elsewhere in Scripture as well. But as we, we consider the context and the grammar of this passage, we see there's a flow of thought going straight through Genesis 1 through 3 from the creation order, Adam being formed first, to, to the fall, then, then what happens right after the fall? We get the, the promise of salvation. We get that early glimpse of the Savior to come in Genesis 3.15, where the Lord actually says to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So from this passage, we see that the offspring of the woman, Eve, will ultimately defeat the serpent. Though his heel is bruised and he'll suffer, the head of the serpent will be bruised. And salvation is announced through the child to be born by the seed of the woman. Though, though Eve has abandoned her role and she's, she's fallen into deception, she's she's. Um, Not embraced her role as a woman. She's taken over the authority of the relationship. She will ultimately bring about salvation into the world by recapturing her God-given role. This salvation that comes through Christ is is for those who continue on in faith, in love, and holiness. These are the the fruit of the Spirit um, coming out of a woman's heart. This is evidence uh, of true and abiding faith. We've seen these qualities mentioned before. Back in chapter one, verse five, Paul says that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right, right Paul had been radically changed by the grace of Christ, and the spirit was working in his life to, to produce these qualities that were motivating his gospel ministry. These are the same qualities that will be characterized uh, or that will be uh, characterizing the life of a woman who has experienced that same salvation. So the principle to take away from verse 15 is that that there's a danger in stepping away from the God-ordained roles for women. When we operate outside of the boundaries that the Lord has assigned for us, we're more open to deception into falling into the schemes of the devil. This is quite a temptation for women here in in Silicon Valley where career and education and social status has become paramount to one's identity. Particularly here, our culture says that a woman's worth and value is found in, in how high she can climb the ladder and gain a position of influence and leadership in the corporate setting. Women are hailed as powerful and strong as they chase after these empty promises that the world provides. Our, our, our culture either implicitly or sometimes explicitly downplays the important roles of wives and mothers while boldly proclaiming that a woman can find her true value in a successful career. Women, you've been, you've been told by our culture that If you don't do everything that a man does, then you're not reaching your full potential. But the subtle message here is that your full potential is to be a man. What an incredibly low view of the potential that God has designed for women to take hold of. So, ladies, as we as we close, like please hear this. Don't buy the lies of the world. Those voices that tell you submission to your husband and to church leadership is degrading, those voices are satanic lies. When you hear your coworkers or your friends downplaying the roles of homemakers, don't buy into those lies. Instead, place your trust in the Lord. The truth is that women are indispensable in God's economy, they are image bearers full of value and dignity. The calling for women to submit to the word of the Lord in this area is something to embrace, be embraced wholeheartedly. To adorn yourself with the gospel, with modesty, with good works. To submit to your husbands and to quietly receive the shepherding of church leaders. To raise up children in the Lord and to love your husband. These are precious in the sight of God. And show the world the supreme value and worth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would we all pray to this end that Christ would be magnified, that the gospel would be proclaimed, and that our Lord would receive the honor that he alone is due, both in our families and here at Lighthouse. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're thankful for your word this morning. We're challenged by it. And we pray that uh, as a church, we would be obedient to your calling here in 1 Timothy 2. That the ladies would assume their uh, proper roles, embrace them, and trust you. And that the men would be the leaders of the church, leading godly lives. Would you help us to do this? Lord, we fail in many ways. So we confess that we are not perfect in these areas, but we desire uh, to live lives that honor you, that fulfill our calling as men and women. And uh, we pray that our church, our Lighthouse Bible Church, San Jose, would, would protect the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, the truth of its, of its doctrines. Not only that, but in the, our lives as well, in the way that we, uh, we worship you As a church, in our families, in all aspects of our lives, would we fulfill our callings as men and women to your glory? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.